And so what you see again and again is that often, uh, not just in the Bible, but in other ancient writings of this time, often when anyone would talk about sinners, they'd also say, and tax collectors. So tax collector became synonymous with sinner. So this is kind of the picture here. You have the most religious, sort of righteous folks in the society, and you've got the most unrighteous, sort of the most hated in the society. You've got to understand that to understand sort of the power of this parable. Okay? These men represented polar opposites in the first century religious culture. The most pious and the most hated. So I was trying to think of what it would be a modern equivalent so that we could understand sort of the gravity of what Jesus is about to say. What's the modern equivalent? Well, it seems to me, now I might be wrong, and if you're in this profession, don't, <laughs> I'm not coming after you, okay? But it seems to me that a modern equivalent might be the way we feel about sort of Wall Street bankers, right? A lot of people don't like Wall Street. They just feel like those people are taking advantage of everyone else and they're greedy and they're out to get their own. And That seems to be sort of a fair equivalent. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be a Wall Street banker. I'm just saying people have feelings, okay? <laughs> Movies are being made, you know, all this sort of thing. Now, what's the equivalent of the Pharisee? No, originally I wanted to say a pastor, <laughs> but I realize pastors, most people don't actually like pastors in our culture, so I don't know if that's really a good, so I was thinking, what is like the opposite of Wall Street and just like a, like a group or a person that people just love, right? Of course, Bernie Sanders, right? So <laughs> this could be the parable of Wall Street bankers and Bernie Sanders, so a Wall Street banker and Bernie Sanders walk into the temple. Now this works because Bernie Sanders is Jewish. So they walk into the temple <laughs> and they begin to pray, right? So just picture this, right? <laughs> Maybe that works, I don't know. But that's kind of how opposite these groups were, right? That's how opposite these two groups were. And we've got to be careful because if you've grown up in the church, you understand kind of where this parable is going because you know often Jesus has sort of negative things to say about the Pharisees. So our sort of modern stereotype of a Pharisee, we've got to kind of check that at the door because we need to get to the place of the original audience. And the original audience didn't have sort of our stereotype of a Pharisee because they hadn't read the Bible yet, they, they still saw the Pharisees as somebody to look up to, okay? So try to check that at the door, uh, and just imagine yourself hearing this parable spoken. If you were a first century Jew, you would not be able to conceive a scenario in which the hero of this story was the tax collector, not the Pharisee. And so look again with me at the text, and I want you to notice something very interesting at the outset. It says, two men went up to the temple, this is verse 10, to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed. And then as we go down farther, it says, verse 13, the tax collector, standing far off. Now those aren't the same words, you can tell, right? They're very similar, and they almost seem the same, but they're very, very different. 
And this is so important to kind of understand the atmosphere with which Jesus is trying to paint a picture of what's going on here. The tax collector is standing off by him, or sorry, oh yeah, the Pharisee is standing by himself. And the reason that he's standing by himself is not because he's trying to get sort of um, away from it so he can focus on God. It's because he thinks everybody else that's in the temple, if he got too close to them, he'd become unclean himself. Those dirty people, I've got to stand away from them so as to not sort of contaminate myself by being seen in the presence of these sinful people. On the other hand, the tax collector, he's standing far off, which is a way of saying that he does not consider himself worthy to come close to the altar of God. See how different those are? One is trying to avoid being next to unholy sinners. The other is so sure that he doesn't belong in the presence of a holy God that he stands far off. And ultimately what we'll see is that I think this parable is about posture. What is our posture in the presence of God? So let's go ahead and compare these two prayers. The Pharisee's prayer went like this. God, I thank you. That's a good start. Thanking God. I thank you for what? That I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even, and it gets very personal here, or even like that tax collector. Thank you for not making me like them. And then he goes through a list of the things that he does do. I fast twice a week. What's important to remember here is that the Jewish law requires you to fast once a year. And he's fasting twice a week. Extra credit. I give tithes of all that I get. Here's what it means. Every single thing that he owned, he would give a tenth of it. He had a stick of butter, you give a tenth of that. Everything. Not just his money, a tenth of everything he owned he'd give. Nothing wrong with that. But the problem with the Pharisee's prayer is that he clearly thinks that God's program couldn't move forward without his contribution. That's the problem with his thinking about tithing. He's thinking that he's so important to God's program that he's reminding God of everything that he's done. Now, it's important to remember here that what Jesus is not doing is sort of saying, you shouldn't do those things. He's getting at the heart, which we see him doing again and again in the parables. What's the heart of why you're doing what you're doing? It's not the things that the Pharisee did that didn't make him the hero of the story. It's the reason that he did them. Now, this was actually a very standard prayer which the Jews, pious Jews, would do when they were praying to God. They would all, I mean, this was a common thing. So he's not even praying in a very, I mean, he, I mean, Jesus is trying to sort of highlight the absurdity of some of the things he's saying, but this was a common way to pray in that pious Jewish men would often pray to God and thank them that they weren't slaves or that they weren't Gentiles or even that they weren't women. Yikes. And uh, this is kind of a real thing that's going on here. So what's the problem? The problem is this. 
Jesus is condemning the Pharisee not for his gratefulness, even. Not for his gratefulness. Jesus doesn't want us to lead a notoriously sinful life. That's not what's going on here. But it's for his lack of acknowledgement of who God is. Okay? Everything's focused on who he is. And then, even more importantly, it's in comparing himself to everybody else around him. It's in his comparison that we see the real problem with the Pharisee's prayer. He is making a value judgment about himself, and he's basing that not on God, not in relation to God, but in relation to the tax collector and, everybody, and everyone else. That's the real problem. Comparison. And what we see as we continue on in the parable, the problem, too, with the prayer is that he thinks that he can be justified by his actions alone. He thinks because of what he's done, God will save him. He thinks because his superiority in keeping the law that God will look favorably upon him. And he sees other human beings in relation to their ability to sin or not to sin. And so he ranks people. Every generation does that. We create a hierarchy of sinfulness in our culture. We say these people are the worst because of this sin. Then these people, then these people. Who do you think those people are in our culture? Don't do that. Don't rank people based on their sinfulness. Otherwise, you're going to end up on the short end of a Jesus parable. Now, let's look at the tax collector's prayer. Verse 13. But, let's stop there for a second. <laughs> anytime, anytime you hear Jesus speaking to a crowd, and then he says, but, you know, if you were a part of what he's just said, you're in big trouble. Let me try to explain this in terms that you'd understand. How many of you have ever watched a season finale of The Bachelor? Raise your hand. Just be honest. This is a place of forgiveness. Raise your hand. Listen. I'm not going to explain to you how I know this illustration that I'm about to use, but I saw it on in the background in my house one time, okay? It's happened over here. Okay. But here's the deal. If you've ever watched the season finale of The Bachelor, two women left. They don't know <laughs> if they're getting picked or not. And they both get out of the helicopter, not at the same time, different times. I mean, we know because we have this sort of, you know, zoomed out view. We get to see. We're in the know. They don't know. And so they walk up out of the helicopter. They're so excited, but they're so scared. And they walk up, and he's waiting for them, and it's so romantic. And this could either be the best moment of their life or the worst moment. <laughs> and you want to know how you know if it's the best or the worst moment? You know the only thing that those women are waiting for, that they're listening for? They don't care. He's saying all these wonderful things about them. I've, I love you and this and that. You're so great. They're only listening for one word, but. <laughs> and if you get, if, if he says it, it's like you watch their face, and as soon as he says but, you, they know it. It's over. I mean, they say, don't even go, don't even talk to me. Just leave me alone. <laughs> but if they don't say but, they know they're in. 
This is true, and I don't know how I know it. It's just the way it is. But the tax collector, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're going to pick her? Jesus? That's right. Final rose, the tax collector. I mean, this is so much like an episode. I mean, we only know them by their job titles. You know, it's like, Susan, masseuse. <laughs> Lauren B., flight attendant. It's like, there's more to these people than this. They have a real last name. Okay, sorry. But the tax collector, standing far off, he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is the most dramatic, heartfelt, emotional thing that someone could have done in that culture, beating their breast. In fact, most men never did this. It was something that women were more known for, and men only do it in the most extreme of emotional states, to beat their breast. In fact, the tax collectors cry, be merciful to me. You could translate that. Let me be atoned. God, take away my sin. That's what he's saying. A scholar named Peter Jones rightly remarks for this bold prayer, saying, the most profound components of repentance are present. One, He's acknowledging his identity as a sinner. He acknowledges his identity, not with his job, not with his name, not with his heritage. His identity is as a sinner. Two, he has a deep consciousness of his personal sin. Not just the identity as a sinful person, but of his personal, actual sin. And then he, three, confesses without qualification. He doesn't make excuses. God, it's the only way I could make money, but I know I'm a sinner. It's I am a sinner in need of mercy. And that's the fourth. He pleads for God's mercy. And Jesus says he's the one who went home justified that day, which means freed from his sin. That God no longer looks at him as a sinful man, but as a righteous man. He has been justified. This is a legal term. He is not guilty before a holy God. And if the tax collector is justified by God's mercy, this is the most unpredictable and outrageous thing that Jesus could have said. If he can be justified, then who couldn't? The answer, everyone can be justified. That's so important not to miss in this parable. If the tax collector can be justified, then no one is too far from God's grace. No one is too far. So 
is such a beautiful picture. Such a simple prayer that's lifted up as the greatest (laughs) prayer in the eyes of God. Now many scholars, and I would agree, believe that the tax collector's prayer is actually echoing another famous prayer that we have for us written in the Bible in Psalm 51. And Psalm 51, the Psalms are a book written by several people, and they're prayers or poems or songs that would be recited in Israel's worship gatherings, that they'd be remembered in their private reflection upon who God is. And this particular psalm, Psalm 51, is a psalm written by King David. King David was the preeminent king. He sort of turned the fortunes of Israel around. He is known as the righteous king. But what's so interesting is Psalm 51 was written at a time in David's life when he was far from God. And the reason he was far from God is because one night he saw a woman in a neighboring house bathing. And her name was Bathsheba. And he invited her over. They ended up, she was married to another man, they ended up having sex. She became pregnant. And what did David do? He's a man after God's own heart. He repented there. He confessed what he'd done. He asked the husband for forgiveness. That's not what he did. The husband was a soldier in his army, and he sent his army into battle, and he told one of his generals, I want you to put that man, Bathsheba's husband, at the front line. I want him to be the one running down the field. Why? So that I know that he'll be killed. So that no one ever has to know what I've done. This is the man (laughs) that's after God's own heart. This is the man held in such great esteem. And the prophet Nathan comes to David, knowing what he's done, and he calls him out. And this lament, this prayer of David was his response to being called out on his unrighteousness. Let me read it for you. Picture this man. Everyone looking up to him. This is what he's done. And his sin is exposed. And he cries out to God. God, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I have brought forth in iniquity. Excuse me. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide my face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. 
Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. You hear that? That's prayer that God sees as worthy. Let me press pause here for a second. Pause, okay. As I was reading this, I just thought of something that, I don't know, maybe, maybe you guys wrestle with this, maybe you don't. But I just wanted to bring it up because I think it makes sense here in the context of this parable and of Psalm 51. We see this example of a tax collector praying a prayer in which Jesus then says he's justified. And we see David, the man after God's own heart, praying this prayer of uh, asking for forgiveness and mercy. And the question uh, that I think lots of us have is, how were people before Christ came and died on the cross saved? Someone like King David. How was he saved? Or, what about someone who has not been evangelized, meaning they have not heard the good news of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection? What if they don't even know the name of Jesus? King David didn't know the name of Jesus. He only knew of God and that God would save. We have no inkling that he knew that the name of his Savior would be Jesus. So what happens to those people? What I think is that Psalm 51 and the prayer of the tax collector becomes sort of a perfect uh, model for the potential of salvation without knowing the name of Christ. Stick with me. What happens to people if they've not heard the name of Jesus and responded in faith and repentance? What happened to the Old Testament saints? Here's what I think happens. Can they be forgiven? Can they be atoned, their sin atoned for? Can they be justified, made in right legal standing before God? Yes and yes, but we have no idea how often this happens, okay? We know that we will one day stand in glory with Old Testament saints like David and Moses and Abraham And we also know when we read the Bible that they too were saved through Jesus Christ, even though he had not yet come into human history, that when Jesus went to the cross, he died for Abraham's sin and Moses' sin, and he died for David's sin. So they're still saved through Jesus, even if they don't know his name. Now, is that possible today? that people that don't know the name of Jesus might be saved in the same manner? Well, if they recognize their sinfulness and their need for God, and they realize that they cannot save themselves apart from God's grace and mercy, and they cry out to God even if they don't know the name of Jesus, even if they don't know the name Yahweh, can they still be saved by grace? And I think the answer is yes. 
and they're still saved through Jesus. He's still the only way that they can be saved is through Jesus, through his death and through his resurrection. So I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. However, that being said, there's no more clear way to understanding our sinfulness and our need for God to save us apart from our own works, the necessity for mercy and grace undeserved than hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God had to send his son into the world to die in our place and rise from the dead. It's very hard to understand the fullness of our need without hearing the gospel. And so, it becomes imperative that people hear the gospel. So I don't want, you know, say, why are you even going down this rabbit trail? Because I think it's something that we think about a lot. But, the best way to come to that realization, to be like the tax collector and fall on our knees, is to hear the preaching of the gospel, recognize our intense need for God to intervene, then find out that he's done it, done it and that it's unconditional. He didn't do it because we did something, but he did it on his own accord, and we know that through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So do I believe it happens? Yes, potentially, but I have no idea how often it happens. And I know for a fact that God's primary plan to saving the lost is through the proclamation of the gospel through his people to the world. Every tongue, tribe, and nation will hear that Jesus Christ has come and died and resurrected and that people will respond to that like the tax collector. That's still the primary plan, even if God, in his own prerogative, chooses to save people in other ways. That's up to him. But he's made it very clear what my job is and what your job is. It's to preach the gospel. Unpause. Okay. That didn't make sense. Send me an email. (laughs) Now we've seen that the uh, the parables in general are meant to make huge paradigm shifts in the people of God, that we would think about the world differently, that Jesus would challenge us to see everything in a new way, even to this day. And so the question is, what is this parable trying to shift in us? I think it's trying to create this great reversal in our thinking, whether we live 2,000 years ago as a Jew in Jerusalem or we live in 2016 in Seattle. I think we need this reversal in our thinking that is not the one who brings piety and purity and obedience and trusts in those things for salvation. That is not the one who goes home justified. But it's the one who simply brings misery, weakness, and dependence. Christianity is a religion of dependence. We are co-dependent on God. And American Christianity, and I think even particularly evangelical Christianity, has been so confused by certain capitalistic economic principles and the way they sort of intertwine into our faith that we've forgotten this most important of facts, that there's no such thing as independence from God. That is not the ideal that Jesus taught. But he taught complete dependence on God 
It's this weakness in the world's eyes that's beauty in the eyes of God. So look with me now. Remember, we talk about context all the time. Why do I come up with this? Right after Jesus tells the parable, look what Luke records for us in verse 15 of chapter 18. He says this. Right after he's just lifted up the tax collector and pushed down the Pharisee, he says this. Now, they, that's the people that would ga- had gathered around him, were bringing even infants to Jesus that he might touch them. And when the disciples, those closest to Jesus, saw it, they rebuked the people. But Jesus, but, <laughs> there it is, but Jesus called to them, saying, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This has always baffled me. I don't know if it's baffled you. What is he saying? I have to be like a child? Am I supposed to forget all the big words I used? All the things that I've learned? Am I supposed to just kind of run around like a rug rat? Is that what he's saying? No. Look at the passive language that's used of the children. Do the children do anything in this story? No. They are brought to Jesus by other people. It's other people that try to stop them from coming. Jesus says, no, come to me. They're totally passive in this narrative. And I think uh, we lose sight of something because of the way children are viewed in our society, which is we tend to romanticize children. But in the ancient world, children are actually viewed at large in a, more, uh, in a very different manner. Children were seen as sort of security in old age, or they were seen as a means of income generation. They were seen as a means to carry on family name and tradition. They were way less protected than they are in our society. In fact, if you decided that you did not want to raise a child, it was perfectly acceptable in society to just get rid of them. Just send them out into the streets. So children in this time were not kind of seen in the same way we see them. Jesus is not saying that you need to have just sort of like puppy dog faith and sort of like smile a lot and giggle when you hear about Jesus. (laughs) That's not what's going on here, okay? He's saying you need to be like children, which is what? Completely dependent on other people for your survival. But really what he's saying is completely dependent on God, your Father. That's what it means to have faith like a child. Not tithing everything and fasting and following the law. That's not what brings you into the kingdom of God. But having a heart like a child, which is knowing that you're dependent and asking that God would give you. I hope that makes sense. It's not the sweetness and the innocence that Jesus is highlighting in children. Because if you ever have kids or you have nephews, you know that they're not innocent. They're little devils. (laughs) But they're so dependent on others. And of course, so dependent on God. Now think of the resurrection. We talked about the resurrection last week. Think about this. Think about how this idea of dependence plays into the resurrection. Can you raise yourself from the dead? Absolutely not. You're dead. You can't do anything. 
It's the most helpless state you'll ever be in. Dead. But God can raise you up from the grave. Again, resurrection is that linchpin to the Christian faith. When I'm dead, I will never be more dependent on God. And the question is, will he raise me up from the grave? Where do we stand in this parable? Where do you stand in this parable? Where do you see yourself in this narrative? You're in the temple courts. There's the tax collector. There's the Pharisee. There's everyone else. Where do you stand? It's easy, I think, to see ourselves as the tax collector. Maybe not. Oh, I know I'm a sinner. I'm not too proud. I'm not hypocritical. Those are, that's my parents. <laughs> I know I'm a sinner. But are you? Or are you more like the Pharisee? There's this great story about a school teacher who taught a great lesson on this parable. He taught a great lesson on this parable, and he was finishing the class, and he said, hey, let's all pray. Here's how he prayed. Lord, we thank you that we have your word and your church, and that therefore we're not like the Pharisees. <laughs> yeah, we chuckle, right? He doesn't get it. He doesn't get that the whole point is stop comparing yourself to other people. You're a sinner in the presence of a holy God. So we chuckle at that. We think, oh, that's so funny. That teacher has not comprehended the true teaching of this parable. But what's ironic is as we are saying that, oh, that dumb teacher, you know what we're praying in our head or out loud? Lord, thank you that I'm not like that Sunday school teacher who didn't even understand the parable so easy to fall into this trap. But Jesus says, salvation is mine, and it doesn't work like a bear chase. Salvation's not a bear chase. Anybody seen The Revenant? Maybe one of the greatest and worst scenes in cinema history, the bear attack. You don't want to be run down by a bear. And the old adage goes, you don't got to be faster than the bear, you just got to be faster than the guy next to you, right? Because then the bear will get him and you'll get away. Here's the problem. Salvation's not a bear chase. The bear called sin and death doesn't stop after it's got one. It keeps going and it'll chase you down even if you're a little bit faster than the other guy even if you're just a little bit more righteous than the guy next to you, even if you're a lot more righteous than the tax collector, that bear is going to hunt you down. There's only one thing that stops the bear. That's the voice of Jesus saying, he's mine, she's mine. Stop. We've seen through the parables that Jesus brings up these crushing sort of realizations. Maybe some of these questions have popped into your mind. They popped into mine as I studied this passage this week. What makes me so confident that I will inherit the kingdom of God? What makes you so confident that you'll inherit the kingdom of God? This parable can be summarized by Jesus' own refrain. His words interpret his words the best. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the resurrection principle. 
Daryl Bach writes this, the men take different positions, different postures. One is certain that he can approach God and almost demand justice as a matter of personal right. The other is so conscious of his unworthiness that he can barely approach God. He who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Whichever one of these two attitudes reflect your relationship with God in this life, the opposite will be true in the life to come. If your posture in this life is unmitigated confidence in yourself and your actions, no matter how good they are, in the life to come, the opposite will be true. You'll have no confidence and no ability to be in the presence of God. But if in this life, your posture is one of humility and unworthiness, In the life to come, you will find confidence to approach God and stand in his presence in the name of Jesus. That is the greatest truth, and we see it again and again, maybe nowhere else more specifically than in the Beatitudes when Jesus is addressing the crowd in his great speech, and he says this, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. That's Jesus. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Here's the big idea. When it comes to salvation, don't be confident in who you are. Be confident in who God is. Do you know that you need resurrection? Do you know that you are a sinner? Do you know that your deeds do not impress God? Do you know that you need his mercy? Do you know that you need God's grace? Do you know that you need Jesus' atoning sacrifice? And do you know that your heart must be reborn by the Spirit of God? If so, you are blessed. We're going to sing this song at the end of tonight called, Oh How I Need You. And I love the words to the song because it's a reminder of this. Oh, how we need God in every way. But the thing I love about it most is not just the words, but the pace and the rhythm of the song because it's an upbeat song, right? How many songs do you hear in which you're exclaiming, oh, I need you, and it's upbeat and you're dancing and you're clapping and it's so exciting? That's so weird, right? But that's the gospel, It's the gospel that turns our cries of mercy into laughs of deliverance. I see this all the time with Grayson. He'll be like making some noises and I'll say, Allie, is he crying or is he laughing? And we say, I don't know. He's laugh crying. I hope you find me one day laugh crying and you say, is he crying or is he laughing? And I'll say, I'm doing both because I see the deep need for God and I realize I cannot fix myself and I'm so desperate and I'm so much need and so I'm weeping and then I realize that God has sent his son to die for me, to take my sin on the cross 
and then he's risen again. And I too can have a new life. And so that cry turns into a laugh. And you almost can't tell, is he laughing or is he crying? And I'm doing both. That's what true prayer looks like. That's why God exalts the tax collector. That's the kind of people that we need to be filled with the gospel. So much need met by so much Jesus. I hope we can fall on our knees tonight and every night. In humility, we can't even lift our eyes to heaven. We beat our chest in true repentance and then we cry out to God, have mercy on me, a sinner, asking for his forgiveness. And he gives it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we don't have to be the Pharisee, that no matter what we've done in our past, no matter what we've even done today, that your grace and mercy is big enough to cover us from all that iniquity, that our transgressions are lost when you gaze upon the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. So if we find ourselves hidden in Christ, we too can with confidence come before you and live eternity in your presence, knowing that it is paid in full That my identity was as a sinner and now is as a follower of Jesus, as a brother and sister to the risen Lord. That's good news. And I pray, Lord, that we would always remember that we cannot work our way to your grace. That you give it freely. And we pray that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.